floor preaching. My story is just the opposite. I had a drug problem. My mom and dad drugged me to Sunday school. They drugged me to church. I'd like to see the hands of people who fell asleep on the front pew more than one time in your life. Now, you have to understand, when we had revival meetings, they weren't three-day three seminars. We only started revivals. They rarely ever finished. And now we have annual revival meetings. What that sign in the front yard says is we die every year. And so annually we get resuscitated. (laughs) Not only did I have a drug problem, I need to explain something. I don't own a watch. So don't worry about me looking to see how much time I have left. I don't care. The Lord trusted me in 1962 with a Bulova Accutron solid gold-filled watch. In those days, it was $600. So I put it on my wrist. I was a hotshot 20-year-old preacher who knew everything, duty-bound to replace Billy Graham in about three months. Stopped in Marysville, California, went into the men's room, took the watch off to put water on my face while they were... Those days, they actually put the gas in the car for you and walked out and left it in the bathroom. So I don't own a watch. I can't trust myself with it. I haven't since 1960-whatever that was owned a watch. I don't know what time it is. I don't care. Somebody says, well, how do you... uh, know what time it is. I ask an idiot with a watch, you know. (laughs) Now, I want to see if I'm in the right house. How many have lost at least one watch in your lifetime? Let me see who you are. How many put things while you never forget them and you can't find them? Let me see. Anybody going into a room and don't know why you're there? Well, don't be nervous. I have a built-in C60 in my brain. You watch. I will stop right on time because I know what time it is. And only because C60s allow me to wind it up. I need to tell you I'm lying to you. I have, I have a plant in the audience, and I'm not going to tell you who she is or what color her pink jacket is. <laughs> but... She's going to tell me when I'm out of time. (laughs) Turn to your neighbor and tell them the southern phrase I just learned. Just turn and say to them, he ain't right. Just turn, turn. (laughs) How many, I don't know what that means. He ain't right. Anybody ever pitched a hissy fit? Let me see who you are. I don't know what a hissy fit is, but I... I ask a man what it was. He says, there is no definition. You'll just know it when you see it. <laughs> How many have seen a hissy fit? Let me... 
I was recently teaching Hebrew to 100 students in a, a little town in North Carolina in the mountains. And uh, these are mountain folks, you know. Uh, I don't want to be disparaging, but they sound mountain. And uh, I asked about a hissy fit. She said, you don't get it. There are four levels. <laughs> you can pitch a hissy fit or you can pitch a hissy fit on the table. Or you can pitch a hair-legged hissy fit on the table. And if you really want to call down hell, you can call the maiden name of the woman that's pitching the hissy fit and add it to it. And you know that's really a hissy fit, so. I'm learning my southern phrases. I love southern speech. Sometimes I get lost in what you're saying, and I just love to hear it. Well, help me over the fence. I have no idea what that means. And by the way, the reason why I was waving my flag during the mall advertisement from Dr. John, and every man, let's boo him, one, two, three. People suffering from Alzheimer's. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, when I was a young man, I was really grateful that some man stole my wife's credit card. He spent a lot less on it than she did. Yeah. I finally got one water cooled. I had to get it water cooled. You'll figure that out out there. Well, I'm here today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to tell you that we have a problem. And today I can tell you the Holy Spirit has identified you as very special to him. Because you can tell a meeting, not just by who attends, but by who does not come. Now, no one in this room has ever experienced what I'm about to tell you that has happened to me. I have had people lie on me. Now, that probably doesn't happen Maybe as far away, if we could get to Sweetwater, you may know someone who's lied. <laughs> Maybe Post. We could pick on Clovis, I don't know. But how many know that at the center of this controversy, there are folks lying the reason they're lying is because liars know lies have consequences. The consequence of lie is death. And the reason people lie is to bring to an end what you're doing. Because what you're doing exposes their lies. What makes a lie work? The reason lies work 
is because they are truthful. When I was a kid, thank God some things have not changed. Nabisco, saltine crackers, still the same, same box, thank God. And everybody said, some things just don't change. Chief among my vegetable family is Oreo cookies. How many are grateful for those black little crackers with white icing? How many know what I'm talking about? Now, they're no good until you've dipped them in ice cold milk. I'm talking milk. We lost one of our relatives. He died drinking milk. The cow stepped on him. (laughs) How many remember when milk was milk? Made your own butter. Oh, my. A lie is like an Oreo cookie. They don't change either. Lies are always the same because their source According to John 8:44 and the mouth of our Lord is Satan himself. He is a father of lies and the hidden agenda in every lie is murder or death. The consequence of lies, the hidden agenda of why people would lie is the same hidden agenda as Satan. Now why are lies accepted? They are truthful. They're full of the truth. They're hard to distinguish. They even sound acceptable. Turn with me to the Gospel of Genesis. I I refuse to call this the book of. This is the Gospel of Genesis. How many like the good news? The good news of Genesis. We have the first lie in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And I want to prove the point. The reason lies are accepted and acted upon is that they are truthful. God had said to Adam and Eve in the garden several interesting things. If you listen to Dr. John this morning... Eve was inside Adam when he said, be fruitful and multiply. There was no separation. There had been no operation. There was not a womb and there was not a male. They were still one like the Father and the Holy Spirit are one and can produce a son called Christ Jesus. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And he said to them, If you eat of this tree that I plant in the middle of the garden, say it with me, thou shalt surely die. Those are the two parts truth in Satan's lie. Part one, you will. Part two, surely die. Those are the words of God. So when you look at the lie of Satan in Genesis chapter 3, He uses two parts truth and adds the word not. You will, from God, not surely die. So what the not does, it calls into question 
why you're here this weekend. A person who can discern truth from lie is a person who knows what God said. How do you defeat lies? With God's word, Matthew 4, Luke 4. How did Jesus defeat the temptation lies of Satan in the flesh, in the mind, and in the spirit? All three attempts by Satan was either a misquotation of scripture, an addition to scripture, a scripture out of context. He took some truth and tried to wedge in his lies, and Jesus never swallowed it any time. Why? He defeated the way that Satan was lying with the word. And so Eve was on notice. Can you tell the lie that's embedded in the word of God that I'm offering you? If you really know the word of God, things just don't sound right. And everybody said... And so when you're sitting in a church and the preacher is waxing eloquently on replacement theology, you go, something in the Oreo cookie ain't right. Anybody ever hear these kinds of things? That little twinge inside of you? It's bumping into your load of the word of God. Lies are truth full. God did say you will, and God did say surely die. Satan put the little white in the Oreo cookie. How do I know that? When you look at verse 5, you see Eve's contemplation of acting on the lie. For God also had said to Adam and Eve, I'm putting trees in the garden, say it with me, pleasant to the eye and good for food. And everybody that likes bananas, apples, pears, pecan trees said, they're not only good to eat, they're fun to look at. My son lives in Mill Valley, California, and in his backyard he has 30 300 foot high redwood trees. If you don't think that isn't gone, Aiden, I'll hand it to you. It's unbelievable. Sun never hits his house. Trees are beautiful to look at. And everybody in West Texas, please, some of you, when you mix, tell them what a tree looks like. They, they don't, uh, they're guessing here. They don't know. By the way, I always get worried because you call these big trees manzanita, am I right? Wouldn't the little ones be boysanitas? It's just a thought. Pleasant to the eye and good for food. How do I know she swallowed Satan's two-part truth, one-part lie lie? Because he said to her, if you'll eat of the forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be able to discern good from evil. You'll get some wisdom. How do we know Satan is lying? His lips are moving. <laughs> I was going to say attorney, but there's two here. Anyway, <laughs> how do we know politicians are lying? Satan's a liar. 
If he says your eyes are going to be open, guess what? They're fixing to be closed. What eyes were open? There were no eyes open. This is what, by the way, Locke and Bacon and Newton call the age of enlightenment. All I got to say to those boys is, the only enlightenment you ever got was your spiritual eyes were shut down and you noticed you're naked. Because all you were left with was physical eyesight. That's not enlightenment. What actually happened was, her spiritual eyes were closed and from that day forward, mankind needed to be born again, which is nothing more than having your spiritual eyesight returned to you. The liar said, you'll get wisdom if you'll eat. Now listen to what she says. The reason I'm going to eat this tree, the reason I'm going to disobey God is I'm going to demonstrate I can't tell a lie from the truth, and I'm going to act on it. I'm going to swallow the Oreo cookie. Why? She said the trees were pleasant to the eye, God, and good for food, God, and we're going to give her what? Wisdom. Satan. The act on a lie is in direct proportion to how the lie was stated. Why are people lying and saying you're being Judaized? Why are people lying and saying that the Old Testament died? Folks, I am sick and tired of being lied on and having God lied on. These people walking around and wagging their tongues are not doing God's work. On either side of the issue, those who pretend to be Messianic Jews, who say that Jesus Christ is neither God or man, are lying. Not because I say so, but because God says so. If anyone says that Jesus is not the Son of God, he is lying. And makes God a liar. How do I know a lie, Dr. Carl? It's real simple. There are only two ways to expose a lie. You take what has been said, a lie, and lay it beside another known lie and notice their similarity. The only other way to know what's a lie is to take the lie and lay it beside something known to be the truth and notice their dissimilarities. I know I'm running a risk, but in Surah chapter 10, excuse me, Surah chapter 5, chapter 10, Surah 5, chapter 10, verse 75. The Quran, the alleged book from Gabriel to the ears of Muhammad. Gabriel, the one who announced to Mary she was pregnant with the Son of God. This same Gabriel told Muhammad 
Jesus, the son of Mary, is not the son of God. In the Surah, it says, Jesus of Mary, the Christ of Mary, is nothing but a messenger. Now lay that beside a lie. And see how it's similar. I know a liar, Satan, who heard God say from heaven, this is my beloved son, who not two inches later in scripture says, if you be the son of God. I declare today, along with Salman Rushdie, the Quran is a book of lies. How do I know that? Because it was authored by Satan himself. How do I know that? He developed an entire religious system. Six centuries after Christ. Where he, Satan, is hated. What a clever lie that is. When you gather for the Hajj in Medina or Mecca. You are obliged to pick up a stone before you leave and throw it at the black stone in the piazza representing Satan. And you are to utter a curse upon Satan. He's hated in Islam. Wow. What a great lie. To make the whole world think that this movement is on behalf of Allah, Arabic for Eloah. Folks, I'm here to tell you something. Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, He is God, and He has defeated Satan, and His time is short. So clever is this book called the Quran, which means in Arabic to humble oneself, that He names in the Quran Michael the Archangel. He names in the Quran Gabriel the archangel. And as you know, there are three. Heaven is divided up into three camps, each having a third of the angels. But when it comes to mentioning Lucifer, whose title is Hasatan, the Satan, the trap setter, how many are glad that when you get saved, you escape from the snare of the bird catcher? How many are grateful Satan has no hold on you? The lie, you see, is so complete in the Quran that in the Quran, Lucifer is never mentioned. Satan is never mentioned. When it comes to mentioning him, Muhammad is so clever, he uses the word Iblis. Iblis is a Saudi Arabian folk tailing bad demonic power. Satan won't even tell you his name in the Quran. He goes by a pseudonym. Folks, I'm here to tell you something. He's a liar. And when people deny that Jesus is the Son of God, they also must lay that lie beside truth. 
Jesus took his disciples to the greatest recreational place on the face of the earth near the waterfall, that place called Banias. It's Banias because Arabs can't say pan. So it's Banias. It's like being around the Oriental. They say, how are you? Reservoir, oh my sword. Anyway, I've been to Japan. I love it. They just and and I can't say Japanese. Everybody admit to it right now. He's got his disciples. The water's running out of the base of Mount Hermon, ice cold, fifty feet wide. Sun's beating down. Fruits and vegetables abounding everywhere. And he said, "All right, tell me, who do the people say I am?" But he doesn't say it that way. Listen to me. He says, whom do people say that I, the son of man, am? So later on in the chapter, when Peter is given the opportunity to answer it directly, he says, you, the antecedent referring back to son of man. And it would be correct English to say, you, the son of man, are he, the anointed one, Son, natural born son of the living God. And Jesus says, Barukata Shimon Barjona. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Why? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My father told you who his boy is. And upon this confession, I'm going to restore my congregation. Not will build in the future. I'm going to make of two one new man. How many are part of that body? You see, the lies have got to stop in the name of Jesus Christ. Not only are we being lied on, Jesus is being lied on. So I've come with a proposition this morning. I want you to go from this place properly prepared. To be able to give an answer. When men ask you. Because surely some folks think you are reprobate concerning the faith. That you've given up on Jesus. And you're not meeting in the church house with the phallic symbol on top of it. And the stained glass windows from Chagall. And they think you're lost. Well, Chagall wouldn't be doing churches, would he? I'm sorry, I... I got a Jew designing, excuse me, Joel, I don't know where you are. <laughs> How many are tired of the lying? How many want to know the truth because the truth sets you free? How many don't mind finding in your family tree a Jew? How many are really prepared to submit to the king of kings who's decidedly Jewish? So how many want this nonsense to stop? How many want to be heard? How many want an opportunity to speak to the truth? And not be dismissed as some radical fringe, seat-seat-wearing idiot who neither knows his Christian roots or his Jewish roots. So I want to give you some ammunition. Did you bring your 30-odd six with you? (laughs) This is a power load now. What are lies? A lie mixed in the... So we swallow it unwittingly. And we end up having to go back and rediscover the truth. If you really want to know what the name of this movement is, it's not Jewish roots, it's not Hebraic roots, it's not ORU, it's not the Department 
of evangelism somewhere or not somewhere. Tell you what it is. It's going back and rediscovering the truth. What does the word of God say? I want you to have three scriptures to review. They are Deuteronomy 12, 28, Exodus 19, 5, and Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Because there is contained in these three verses some dynamite to break loose your ignorance, to give you a grasp on both testaments, what the ultimate purpose of God was before Adam and Eve submitted to the Oreo cookie? What did God have in mind for them? I want you to say the motto of God, the mandate for man. What did God mandate for us to do and be? I want you to find in Deuteronomy 12, 28, or Exodus 19, 5, or Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and it'll go under different English words, and that's our problem. It's masked and hidden. I want you to say, observe, observe. and obey. Observe and obey. Keep and hear, sometimes in English. But the Hebrew, shamar, S-H-A-M-A-R, and shema. How many have tried the shema from time to time? Shema Yisrael Adonai. How many have heard this word shema? It's translated in your Bible to what? Hear with the expectation to obey. When my dad whooped my behind he wasn't questioning my ears when he said, hear me, boy. How many know what he meant? <laughs> Do you intend to behave? What does God want us to do? Observe and obey. And we create our own problem because we are ignorant of this. And the person in the church we're trying to win over to our movement is as ignorant as he can be because we've all been swallowing Oreo cookies. That the Old Testament is Jewish, the New Testament is Christian. That the church has replaced Israel. That God is mad in the Old Testament and quite happy in the New. <laughs> We've got so many Oreo cookies in our stomach, we don't know what we believe. How many want the lies to stop right here? Amen. Then this congregation needs to be a Torah observant and a Torah obedient people. They are not the same if I say to you I'm Torah observant your immediate reaction is you got a bag of Oreo cookies on your breath if I say I'm Torah observant you're going to say oh, oh, oh he's going to church on Saturday now because you think I've said Torah obedient 
Turn to your neighbor, pinch them, make sure they're enjoying this moment, and say, are you listening? Just look them in the eyes. Are you listening? I want their attention because I want you to tell them. Just do it in West Texan, okay? Say it to your neighbor. Look them in the eyes. Shamar ain't Shema. Just tell it to them. Now look at the neighbor back, you just, and you say, well, I'll tell you what, Shema ain't Shamar either. You just tell them, let them know. We're stopping the lie right here. God's mandate is not singular. I'm telling you in my prayers this morning for Brad around 5 o'clock, we're wonderful because he's engaged in a project of Bible translation to bring these things forward. If you have a new international translation of the Bible, Deuteronomy 12, 28 has fallen prey to the social understanding that these two words are one and they've even interpreted it. If you have Deuteronomy 12, 28 NIV, it only says obey. Because we've made them one, the translators have submitted this. I'm telling you in the text, it's shamar Shemar. Shamar Shemar. It is obey and observe. Observe and obey. Why they are different. Please look at that ugly person next to you and notice their eyes don't look like their ears. Just reach over and tweak one or two of them. Please notice the physiognomy. Eyes are different than ears. How many are thrilled when your little baby goes, nose? Would you reach over and touch your neighbor's ear right now and say, ear, ear, just ear, touch. The lie has to stop here. They're not the same. When I say I'm Torah observant, it means I'm going to look into the Torah and stare at it one day, two days, three days, four days. I'm going to look at the Torah and find the tabernacle. I'm going to look at the Torah and find the feast days. And I'm going to observe it, and I'm going to observe it, and I'm going to observe it until I see Jesus Christ on every page in every verse. That's what I mean, Torah observant. Concerning Torah obedience, if he says stand, if he says sit, but it's not when the church doctrinal statement says stand or sit, it's when he says it to me. How many have had the Holy One of Israel working on you concerning Shabbat? Be honest with me. We're so struggling with Constantine and the whole issue of what day? We don't know what to do. The lie stops here. If you will observe that command long enough, the Holy One will talk to you about obedience. Now I want to tell you why he said both. They require each other. Remember God gives truth in twos. And Satan wedges in a third lie. You know what I'm talking about? Well, let's just talk about the two truths here. Every command, every statement, every word, every sentence, every paragraph requires your ears and your eyes. Why? 
Why obey and not just be observant? Why obey and not just study and learn depth? Because obedience brings morality to observation. As you're studying a matter and you have no morality tethering you, you're free to take all you've discovered about atomic weaponry and use it on anyone you choose. So you must have the commandment, thou shalt not kill, to bring the morality. Obedience brings morality to observation. That's exactly why we're worried about Iran and North Korea today. That is exactly why we are concerned about Hamas being in government control of a few million people on the borders of Israel. And that is precisely the sick problem in Austin, College Station, Harvard, Stanford. They offer an education without morality. How many believe we need God back in education? Once you remove obedience by Immanuel Kant's reason and transcendentalism, and that every man is an island to himself, and your own morality is dictated by the situation, folks, atomic bombs fall on innocent people. Jet airplanes fly into towers in New York City. And those that would lie about it don't even have two parts truth. The French, the moment those towers went down, said it was a Jewish conspiracy. There's a book in France. Tell me how I feel about French. I better slow down because I had the French's mustard company call me and said, lay off because the only thing we have in common is our color. I don't believe I said that. Another disclaimer for Dr. Jim. <laughs> Folks, listen to me. Without obedience, science and discovery and observation is immoral. What does observation bring to obedience? Well, you take Dr. Carl and you set him down in a chair in a doctor's office and you grab him by the cheeks and you say, Dr. Carl, you're a diabetic. Stop drinking Pepsis with peanuts in them. Well, There's a spirit of flesh raises up inside of me that says, I know where the 7-Eleven is. My car has an uncontrollable urge to enter those parking lots. <laughs> Pepsi's no good unless it's ice cold in a bottle with peanuts in it. Five times a day. Don't do it. Well, you see, if you're only asking me to obey and not be observant, I may continue doing that foolish thing. But teach me to observe. By taking me to the amputee ward where gangrene feet are being removed from the Pepsi-holics. Let me observe what it looks like to suddenly be four feet five 
and not six feet two. And suddenly, obedience doesn't seem so bad after all. Why? Observation brings love to obedience. What is happening in this movement is as we look at the commands of God and we dig into the Torah, our love for Jesus Christ is it's, it's increasing exponentially. Folks, I'm not getting farther from Jesus. I'm getting closer to Jesus. Because my observational time is making the love come to what Jesus said to do. How many in this room are glad you obeyed that if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? How many happy folks are in here today? Well, what are you doing in the Old Testament? I'm observing what set that up so I have a brand new love for it. Folks, I want you to be Torah observant. Why? I don't mean Torah obedient. I don't care if you wrap the leather straps exactly seven times on your left arm and you got the phylactery exactly on your bicep and next to your heart and you can spell Shaddai on your hand. I don't care if your seat seat are on your Ketan or on your prayer shawl. I don't care if you're wearing a beanie. I don't care if you don't wear a beanie. You understand me? I have an appreciation for it all. If God says to you be obedient to him, it's not an issue to me. I don't call attention to it. But boy, do I love to put a talit in my hand and get the seat seat in my hand and begin to explain to folks that are sick in their bodies and need a touch from on high that this woman walked up and she touched this in the Lord's name and she was made completely whole. I love to explain to a person that is listening to me that that prayer shawl has a lot to do with two women in succession in the gospel. One who couldn't stop bleeding for 12 years got in touch with the Lord's prayer shawl. And one who died at age 12 and didn't even start bleeding had the Lord's prayer shawl on top of her. I want to tell you something. He can stop bleeding or he can start it. He can end life or he can begin it. I'm telling you, he can raise the dead if he has to because my Lord reigns. And as I observe the Torah, it brings a love to the word of God. It's not I have to worship on Shabbat. I get to. This day was made for me, not me for it. And by the way, what if day one was Tuesday? Anyway, I just think throw these things out. How many want to be Torah observant? How many want to look deeply into a communion service and see Jesus? How many want to look at a Passover and see Jesus? How many want to look at the tabernacle and see Jesus? How many want to read Moses and find Jesus? How many want to read the Apostle Paul and find Jesus? That's all we're saying. The rest of it's a bunch of lies. Folks, we are both Torah observant and Torah obedient. Why? We're walking with the author. Now I declare to you something. I'm going to ask Joseph to come and end with playing the violin because I want to turn this into a raucous rally. 
I'm nuts for Jesus Christ if you haven't figured it out yet. And I'm sick and tired of the lies. Told about Al, told about Tommy, told about GLC, told about Jim Jackson. I'm sick of it. He had a pastor not long ago say, don't bring your ministry to our city because you're coming on the wrong day. And you'll confuse the Jewish community. And they'll make fun of you because you're not doing it on the exact day. Folks, if we went to cities around America on the exact Jewish holidays, we could only go to three cities. So I wrote back to Jim and I said, perhaps you need to ask him why he's celebrating Christmas on December 25th. Maybe you need to ask this man why he's rolling Ishtar eggs on the churchyard. How many are tired of the lies? I'm sick of it. I'm a passionate man. And when I leave this place this week, you all need to know what I'm doing. We only do this so we can eat. We have a passion. And it's not associated with public speaking and writing books. Seated in this auditorium is a man by the name of Joel Bell. Came all the way from Israel. Why? He has a passion. Has nothing to do with making stained glass windows or silver doors. His passion is to be to the Jew as Ruth. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Dr. Brad is going to go back to Tulsa. And he's going to instruct students. But that's not his passion. His passion is to give you all a translation of the Bible that eliminates as many errors and misconceptions as possible so that you can see the connectedness to both Testaments. That's his passion. Dr. Gar is going to go back to Atlanta and fly all over to make a living. That's not his passion. I'll tell you what his passion is. He's a member of the Gentile Messianics who sees a future with Jesus coming where God was in Christ reconciling John Gar with Ariel Sharon. It's a passion that drives this man to research and to go into libraries and dig stuff out because he knows you don't have time to. He's not trying to be famous. He's trying to ignore the criticism and expose the lies and give you the two testaments so you can both observe and obey. Dr. John Looper is not going back to Cleveland, the capital city of Israel. Oh, excuse me. To pastor a church, to be on television and radio, he's going back there because he has a passion that all of this heady stuff we talk about, wordsmithing, using big words when little ones would be better, he's going back because he wants big words to be made little words so that little children get it in the next generation. This man's passion is to pastor. Helen's not going back to Columbia, South Carolina to run some sort of a boutique. She's leaning over to me the whole time and she says, God's speaking to me in this room. And do you think, Dr. Carl, it would be wonderful for us to come back and bring the pageant 
of Ruth saying, your God will be my God. And just imagine a room five times this size filled with 40 dancers and 40 foot streamers and people being carried and people being dancing. Oh, please, you know, I had a request the other day, but I'm going to sing anyway. Anyway, uh, I, I couldn't sing or dance if you made me to. But she has a passion to make Jesus Christ known to a community by illustrating it in a Jewish setting. That's her passion. Sitting here is Yohanan Salamanca. He's not going back to be new Presidente Fox. He's going back with anointing, not to pastor a church, not to have the Timothy Bible College, but he's been elevated here today. He may be the man that God uses through God's learning channel to alert one million Mexican Jews, it's time to go back home to Israel. I'm telling you, this is big stuff. The Italian who thinks she's Jewish and her husband who thinks he is a sartorial splendor dress guy, he, he wore an orange shirt the other day. I had to put my shades on. It was awful. What's their passion? To win middle Florida to Jesus? Probably. What's their passion? To make albums? No. What is their passion? To be able to bring to the body of Christ some lovely songs that lift up and glorify Yeshua HaMashiach. Have you enjoyed their passion? Jim Jackson's not going back to Black Mountain, North Carolina to live in a retirement home. He's looked me square in the eyes more than one time and said, what have you drugged me into? This Presbyterian was mine in his own business. He met me, and wow. He has a passion for the body of Christ that allows him to sit in pastor's offices all over this world and calm them down and gently say to them, Jesus has a family heritage. We just want to call attention to it. We love the Lord. His passion is to present these kinds of meetings so you can go home not only blessed and having a, had a good feeling, but folks armed to the teeth with weapons we fight with that are not carnal, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. I say to you, Al and Tommy Cooper are not going back over there to turn 15,000, I don't even know, kilowatts. I, I, I flunked school. But anyway, I think there's some, I think it's not a neighborhood in South Los Angeles. It's power, watts, you know, lots of power. You had to live in L.A. apparently. Anyway, do you think they want for one minute the headache of a computer blowing up in the middle of a program? Issues with disgruntled employees. How much do you think they really enjoy all the hate mail and the false accusations? I'll tell you what their passion is at all costs, including their own life, to be the light of the Southwest. That's their passion. I was seated underneath a tree in a courtyard at a hotel near the Sacramento uh, Convention Center, right across the street, actually, from the capital city, uh, capital of the city of Sacramento. Just July of 2004, 
and Bill Gothard and I were talking about me speaking to his convention and we were rehearsing his history and he said to me the first 20 years were and the next 20 years were. I said, Bill, the first 20 years you saved a bunch of us drug addicts out of Vietnam. He brought order to the home. Then the next 20 years all of us got saved and had babies so you developed a homeschool program. But I said, you can leave a legacy that will outlive you. He said, what is that? I said, these children that you've designed to not be fit for the world, you've succeeded. They're not fit for the world. No TV, long dresses. People have arranged marriages. Just like the book. And they don't fit in the world. And the entry level of employment is all these boys have at McDonald's. Because you forbid them to go to college. For fear that the colleges in this world that are decidedly now secular will knock God out of them. I'm not talking about secular universities. I'm talking about church-started schools. Baylor University just had the finest man in the nation resign just because the financial people said, if you put God back in Baylor, we'll lose revenue. I know what I'm talking so Bill Gothard said, well, what should I do? And I said, you ought to start a university where you put God back in the curriculum, not in the classroom, not in the chapel, not with sayings on the walls, not in professors' mouths that you try to screen to make sure they're Christian. You must embed God's word in all curriculum. <laughs> Science, math, medicine, law. Everybody needs to begin with the word of God. Why? I'm Torah observant and I'm Torah obedient. There is no such thing as secular education. All education is sacred. All of it. Make fun of my Bible if you want to and call it naive, but I'm here to tell you, while the Bible may not be a science textbook, it tells you to research science. While it may not be a book on medicine, it tells you to heal the sick. Folks, I'm telling you in modern terms, the Bible is the perfect search engine for every discipline of study. Why do what I do? I'd put the Torah in Hebrew on every page of every textbook of every student in every class. Why? I'm studying medicine because that verse says these plants are for the healing of the nations. And then I would require every student for every fact that they learn. And I don't care if you put evolution right beside creation. You make the students say after they've learned what man has discovered from creation and recorded it in textbooks, compare the findings of men with the word of God, and you tell me, student, are they agreeing or not? I'm fearless. Put Chuck Darwin in every book you want to put him in. Chuck, you know Chuck. He was a guy that was smoking dope on the Galapagos. Anyway, I don't care where you put him. Just make the student say, we just oozed. Does that line up with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I call you to the support of everyone in this front row. You find them before they leave this place and say, I'll be praying for you. Where can I send you money? I want to fund your passion. How many want a Bible that really exposes the Old Testament? 
How many want some more books to explain to us all that we're learning? How many want a pastor? How many might even want to move to Israel and live next door to Joel, right beside some Jews? Well, here I am, and Joseph's about to play because we're going to stand up and we're going to listen to music and we're going to praise God without any dismissal. This is the benediction. We have failed to listen to the words of our Lord Jesus. I'm speaking to you as a Southern Baptist. Join me on your feet. The Magna Carta of the Southern Baptist Convention is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's obedience. Here's where we failed in missionary activity. Teaching them to observe. It's not obey. We should have gone to India with Jesus and then shown them the Torah because from the Torah, the Holy Spirit would have showed them how to farm, how to marry, how to live. How many want the whole world to be Torah observant? So when I met in Los Angeles on February 14th last year with Benny Ilan, and he said, who are you? I said, Ani Rotsi. I'm from the root of Jesse. What do you want to do in Jerusalem? I want to teach Torah observance from Mount Zion. How many like the whole world to be able to tune into a television station and learn medicine and law and science and school teaching from the Lord himself? One, two, three, how many want God back in education? Amen.